Hi everyone, my name's Ben Shields and welcome to Make Good, a monthly conversation with Australian artists, designers and entrepreneurs that examines how they use design to shift behaviour and thinking for the better. Tim Reed is a doctor and has lived in Brunswick since the early 1990s when he started work as a general practitioner. A passionate climate change activist, Tim was elected as the state MP for Brunswick in 2018 and again in 2022, becoming the first Greens MP for the electorate. Tim is a little outside of the artist, designer and entrepreneur guests we usually have on the show. However, we felt that policy design and the high-level implementation of design ideas through state parliament was an interesting perspective to unpack. In this discussion, we chatted about the similarities and differences between being a doctor and an MP, what a day in the life of an MP is like, as well as the power of public health to drive change in areas like homelessness, social housing, climate change, transport, and so much more. Also, this episode was recorded before the state election last year. Just wanted to clear that up. Now let's dive into our discussion with Tim Reid. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Been a real pleasure. Could you please just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So for the last four years, I've been the Greens State MP for Brunswick. This seat of Brunswick was Labor for 100 years and then it went Green for the first time in the 2018 state election. Since then, I've been representing the people of Brunswick in Parliament, one of just three Greens voices in the state lower house, 88 seats, 55 Labor, three Greens, just to give you an idea of where it's at. You're a doctor, you're you're a GP and you studied medicine. What what led you to study medicine? It's so long ago, uh, but look, I really loved science and biology and doctors did glamorous things fixing broken people and I thought that was for me. I wasn't really one of those super caring kind of people who went into doc- in, into doctoring for that reason. I love the science, but you can't help but do medicine and and uh, learn about about the human side of it and that was actually what attracted to me. So I came for the science, stayed for the humanity. And what led you to run for state office? So I had a number of experiences over my life which showed me the importance of politics and state politics in particular. As a medical student, I was involved in the campaign against cigarette advertising back in the 1980s in Victoria, got arrested spray painting billboards and I saw the real importance of what the Kane government did back then in banning cigarette advertising. You know, people don't remember, but when you walked out of the Children's Hospital on Flemington Road, there were enormous ads for Winfield cigarettes out there and there are kids inside, teenagers who are hooked on nicotine inside the hospital. So that's where I got arrested. Do you consider yourself an activist? Yeah. The thing that drove me to get involved in politics personally was climate change. Yeah. There are a lot of really good parallels between trying to get the world off tobacco and trying to get the world off coal and gas. Yeah. And similar people and companies even trying to keep us addicted to coal and gas. Do you remember when climate change became really important for you? Yes. I read about it when I was doing HSC chemistry and uh, it was a kind of theoretical thing that might be a problem in the future. But it, it all uh, became too real when I saw Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth. And he came out here, 
I'm going to say 2006, 2007, something like that. I think that was the time when anyone who was politically engaged would have to have known that this was a real problem that we had to deal with. I'd also just completed a home renovation and installed 44 halogen downlights. So it was a pretty inconvenient <laughs> time for me to see that film too. Could you take us through a typical day of a Greens MP? Sure. Well, let's leave out the let's leave out the 4 a.m. wake in fright when you think of something you've forgotten to do or say. And uh, but first thing I do when I wake up is have a look at the news headlines to see what other people are saying and doing that we might have to react to. And uh, then if it's a parliament sitting day, we begin the sitting week on a Tuesday morning by fronting up to a news conference nicknamed Doors because the media stand around the back doors in the car park and uh, a procession of politicians line up, stand in front of the microphone and, and say what interesting thing they hope might get on the news that night. So that involves a a degree of preparation when we're involved in that and uh, it's also quite fun testing yourself against the the weird and unexpected questions from the assembled media then it parliament begins and we're often arguing about things that we didn't expect to but often whatever legislation the government's put up we don't get a lot of warning about what bills we'll be debating that week the the Thursday before, typically, is when they tell us what bills are up for discussion. And then there might be questions without notice and question time, which you sometimes see snippets of on the news, and trying to just uh, not get drawn into the um, often quite fake hatred that gets thrown around the, the room. There's a lot of theatre in Parliament, and the, the MPs are much nicer to each other outside the room than you'd predict from watching question time. And then on it goes. It sounds it sounds so different to the life of a GP. Was there a big transition period or, or learning period while you were adjusting? Well, I should explain that between Parliament weeks, I'm in my electorate office, yeah. often hearing or, or hearing from or seeing constituents yeah. who talk to me about their problems, some of which I can fix and some of which I can't. And in many ways. There's this, there's a parallel. Yes. Uh, sometimes I can give things complicated names and say, but I can't help you, and that's remarkable. In fact, in medicine, I specialised in sexual health, and uh, you know, some days I'd come home and think, I've seen a lot of dicks today, and you could argue that perhaps <laughs> politics isn't always a whole lot different. Could you talk a little bit more about that that debating um, uh, part that happens in Parliament when you're debating bills? Because, you know, most of my experience watching Parliament in action is, is question time and I assume that the debating part is, is a bit different. Yeah, so th there are broadly two kinds of Parliament uh, experience and one is question time where everyone's in the room, the media are in the press gallery, all eyes are on you if you're speaking and with uh, so few Greens, we get very limited opportunities at all to stand up and ask questions, you know, typically once or twice a sitting week, and you get a minute and that's it. And I, I've got to tell you about the first time I ever asked a question, which I was basically shitting myself, and I stood up there, tried to conceal the fact that I was trembling and asked the water minister about... Uh, uh, how much water was going down the Murray Darling and the, the fish kills that were happening a few years ago. And the minister proceeded to pretend that I'd asked about the wrong part of the river and to explain to me that there was a northern part of the basin and a southern part of the basin, which was irrelevant, and basically bashed me up. And uh, 
I sat down, lesson learned. The It's really all about theatre. It's not about trying to get an answer to an interesting question. It's about looking good on TV or making the other person look bad. And, and so you often get a gaslighting kind of answer. Then the other part of Parliament is the debates on the bills. When the chamber's almost empty, there are no media, few if anyone in, in the gallery watching, and most of the MPs are absent, although often watching the proceedings on a screen in their room. And MPs give their speeches on a bill almost to, to an empty chamber but it's there partly for posterity, it's there so they can show it to interested people in their electorate who might be uh, might want to hear them say certain things. Uh, there, but there are rare moments in Parliament where there is actually something kind of constructive happening. And But there have been, I have to say, very few of those. As someone on the progressive side of politics, what sorts of things do you do to keep yourself abreast of emerging technologies or, or new ideas or changes in the way that we we could do things um, that you might want to bring to the party or your colleagues and discuss, you know, as potential policy, policy ideas or projects? Often good ideas that I get start from a constituent email. Someone or rings me up and, and says, have you thought about this or there's a problem here? And particularly if I've he- heard this from two or three different sources, I might get concerned or or there could be just something in the paper. But what I can do now, which I couldn't do before, is just pick up the phone and ask someone to brief me on it. And and people, whether it's academics or public servants, are keen to make sure we know what they know uh, and are often, you know, really delighted to have the opportunity to explain things. Just on a side note, the government's quite keen to restrict our access to the bureaucracy, but it's remarkable how many members of the bureaucracy uh, pick up the phone and ring us. So that's, that's, it often is a phone call and a conversation. I get a lot more verbal information than, you know, reading through the medical literature, which was what I would have done previously. But I still like to go through some technical publications uh, or, you know, I can't keep my eyes off Renew Economy for more than a few days. So it sounds like the, there is a research element to what you do. There is, but I'm I'm ashamed to say I'm often after summaries and, uh, you know, I open a report and executive summary, read the recommendations and hope I've got the main bits just because time is so short. Have you developed like a, a level of media savviness that you didn't have before? Yeah, like war wounds, basically. Uh, you get sculpted by your experiences. And one of the things is that if I was having a, uh, a long discursive discussion like we're having with a reporter, it would quite likely be the one sentence I said that discussed something bad about the Greens or some conflict between different elements of progressive politics that would get reported and nothing else. And so, in you know, I've learned that if it's an interview that could be hostile, then to limit the number of things you say. And that explains why. Have you ever wondered why politicians often are quite repetitive in interviews? Yeah. It's because they only want two or three sentences to to get any airtime. When you're looking at someone give a political interview, what things impress you? If they can, if someone can sound relevant and interesting. Yeah. And I was, that's why actually I really like 
inexperienced politicians uh, or independent politicians because they can just leap in and answer the question and uh, hang the consequences. In a political party, though, you actually have to often consult with your colleagues. I'm speaking for a group of people. I'm not just speaking for me. And so sometimes, the, you know, it would be undemocratic of me to just say precisely what I think. How would you describe the role of a state MP um, in an ideal world and what would you say the outcomes are? Sure. So I think state politics is a little bit, Uh, below a lot of people's radar. The pandemic, though, showed Mm. the power of the states. And I hear people say, I don't really care about state politics. And but I say, well, you know, do you care about public transport? Do you care about good schools and hospitals? Do you care about policing and the criminal justice system and they they go usually stop stop yes okay I care about state politics and th- that's that's just some of the reasons why it's so important I think that uh, there's I've already covered too many topic areas for one MP to get their teeth into and so I, th- I think one of the things we need to do is pick some particular interest areas or things where we think we can make a difference, but also figure out how to work within the parliamentary system to represent the needs of our constituents. Uh, So, you know, part of it's proactive and a lot of it is necessarily reactive Mm -hmm. and reactive in a good way. People come to me with a problem and, uh, you know, I did not enter politics to deal with the epidemic of tagging along Sydney Road, but... Uh, I would be deaf and blind if I didn't speak to it and point out that, yes, we need to do more about it. Yeah. I heard a quote during the last during the last federal election that all politics is local. Do you agree with that? Well, it's a it's a good nostrum. It might have come from one of the Kennedys or someone like that originally. I, I couldn't tell you. But uh, it's a good reminder for people like me who are concerned about big systemic issues, whether it's uh, uh, the over-imprisonment of Aboriginal people or or dealing with climate change, to just remember that local issues are very important, but not only that, local angles on those big issues are also important. So, for example, I'm keen to reduce car use and the volume of vehicle traffic that's clogging up my electorate our neighbourhood, and but that speaks to the broader issue of climate change at the same time. If you had one project or one change that you could make, um, realistically, what what would that be? Well, I I seem to have uh, become, you know, so obsessed with the issue of revitalising Sydney Road that I'd like it to be that one. Yeah, cool. um, I, I can't point to a single change on Sydney Road yet, and who knows, it may not happen for some time. But uh, I feel like change is inevitable and it's really just a case of how long the government can continue to look the other way and ignore the need for change. Do we all have the responsibility to move community in a more climate change-oriented direction? What sorts of methods do you think we have at our disposal to help us do that? Sure. So... uh, I think that 
there's been a debate and it kind of underlies your question a little about whether we need the actions of individuals rather than top-down government decisions to address climate change. We obviously need both. But in the absence of ambitious government leadership, all we've got left is coordinated individual actions. And while I'm forever optimistic that the government will pick up its game, uh, in the meantime, it's our job as individuals to both push the government to go a whole lot further and faster in its in its climate action, but also for us to do whatever we can, whether it's insulating our homes uh, and and taking other measures to cut our power bills and and fossil fuel use, or or whether it's to, you know, eat less meat and, and, and all those things we can do as individuals. What does coordinated individual action look like? Well, for me, coordinated individual action includes political action, right? So people getting together and pressuring MPs and other organisations to act on their behalf. But it also means things like bulk buys of solar panels or electric vehicles. You know, it's not all political. There's a quote of yours that I really liked, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but health can be a sacred password for sweeping political change. I really like how you've connected issues like climate change, fossil fuel-driven cars, getting housing off gas to health, um, because it helps to remove the politics and the economic spin out of out of these issues, and it, it I think it makes them much harder to argue against. Was there a light bulb moment for you when you realised that this type of connection was an effective way to communicate the value of of action on these issues? Yes, probably a few light bulb moments, but one I remember in particular when I was asking uh, a professor of medicine to critique the Greens' health policy and he remarked, well, actually, your most important health policy is probably your transport policy. And his point was, and uh, I feel dumb not even recognising it until then, was that when people take the tram or the bus they're walking to the stop and getting that incidental exercise. And when people jump on their bikes, they're getting heaps of exercise. And it's incidental exercise that's built into your lifestyle rather than paying for an hour at the gym four times a week. That is really good for our health. So that that was my light bulb moment that stands out. Can you take us through the process of designing a bill for parliament you know, starting with the idea, then development, then writing all the way through through to introduction to parliament and then, you know, passing or failing? Sure. So ideas come from all directions, uh, including constituents. But I remember one particular conversation with a group of lawyers who came to see me talking to me about the fact that people charged with minor offences are winding up in jail all the time. And it shouldn't be happening, that people don't get bail anymore. And so we ended up with a a kind of list of ideas on a bit of paper uh, for how to improve Victoria's bail system, which had been tightened recently after some horrible crimes, including the Burke Street massacre and so on. And that, that list of ideas became a list of instructions which went to uh, the office of the Chief Parliamentary Council and that's an office 
within parliament which which drafts legislation and 100 emails later backwards and forwards we we had a draft bill which began its life in my office but has been presented to parliament you can see it on the parliament website now a, a draft bill to reform bail to keep particularly vulnerable groups low level offenders out of prison right now not almost half of the people in victorian prisons are unsentenced waiting for their court date and a great many of those people are aboriginal people women kids homeless people in particular and so the bill is a, essentially a proposed solution to that problem the government has said they're not going to support it they never support non-government bills and the victorian parliament is unique among parliaments that, that is the victorian lower house uh, for not allowing private members bills okay. uh, so that's a in my view, a black mark on the Andrews Labor government. Um, but uh, we were able to get the bill presented and, and what's called second read in the upper house by my upper house colleague, Samantha Ratnam. And so it sits there as a signpost to current and future MPs to say, this is what we need to do to reform bail in this state. I see. And so that's the that's the bill process. Yeah. Now it could go one step further, except we've run out of time in this parliament where we've got two sitting weeks left. But the next step would be for a debate and a vote. Okay. Uh, against, often the votes don't happen because if the government doesn't want to vote on a bill, they kind of just talk it out uh, and, and don't allow time for the vote. But, uh, it's it, even the, if that happens, it's still a way of getting government upper house government MPs on the record, giving their response to the legislation. And so the bills that we've put forward are ways of pushing the government to be better, to be more ambitious, to go further in whether it's you know the the latest bill we've put up on closing coal by 2030, uh, or or um, a bill to raise the age of criminal responsibility to keep kids out of prison, these sorts of things which you know, the government's not going to agree to today, but uh, in years to come, we hope that they'll be, they'll be policy. And in terms of the actual writing part, um, could you just, just step me through that a little bit in, in a little bit more detail? Of course. So, you, so you, you guys come up with the ideas and then you email, so you don't have your own sort of staff that can write that's right we don't draft the legislation yeah, okay, okay. Um, and that that service is offered by the parliament right okay and interesting it, it means that you get a better quality product you get yes, a bill that sure. would work if the bill was passed it would it would actually do something and yeah. um, a lot of bills if you if you sit and read bills a lot of bills essentially amend a whole lot of existing laws and a bill that does one thing might amend half a dozen different acts of parliament and you know subsection 6c brackets a1 delete this bit and put this bit in here and so on and so they're not bedtime reading very technical what why do we need to reduce the traffic in in sydney road um and tell us also a little bit about the successes you've had reducing speed along nicholson street sure so go to sydney road Walk along the footpath and you'll be overwhelmed by traffic noise and fumes. And if you spot a really nice Greek cake shop on the other side of the road, your next challenge 
is how to get there without being killed. So <laughs> Sydney Road is a wonderful destination, but it could be so much better if it was safer, less threatening, and if sitting down on the footpath to have a coffee what wasn't an act of bravery. And, and so turning Sydney Road into less of a traffic sewer and more of a destination would do so much for the locals, for the visitors and for the traders that it seems like a no-brainer before you even consider bikes. But it was bikes that got me interested in Sydney Road. So Brunswick, I think, has always had a lot of people who ride bikes because it's just that sweet spot distance to the university, the hospitals and the city. And cycling has taken off through the pandemic as well. The other thing, have you noticed, is these two, three-seater, fairly low electric cargo bikes that people are leasing or buying and they're the family's first or second Mm -hmm. car. Mm. They're outside every primary school now. And so people who live in this area are buying these cargo bikes. And so we're becoming very much a two-wheel neighbourhood. We need separated bike lanes. We need physical separation so that people who aren't kind of courageous and used to cycling in traffic feel comfortable going through our neighbourhood. And so separated bike lane on Sydney Road is a no-brainer. And if you take away the, you know, one of the biggest wastes of space, which is the parked cars, there's room for the bike lanes and to widen the footpaths to give yourself a bit more room for those cafe tables and so on. And so it all just came together like that. And are we talking about no cars along Sydney Road or just, just reduced? What I've mainly been talking about is just taking away the parking. Yeah, okay. I mean... No cars would be great, but there's a minor detail of, you know, where do the cars go. Sure. There are four or five north-south routes through the neighbourhood, so that's that's not impossible. The other possibility to consider for no cars would be to just do something like Friday and Saturday nights for the, the restaurant yeah. period. Yeah. But I haven't been seriously considering banning cars altogether. Nevertheless, it would be a... Uh, I think the other thing that will improve it, of course, is as transport's electrified, there'll be less soot and fumes Mm, mm. and it'll be quieter. And, in fact, the vehicles to electrify first are the Harley-Davidson motorbikes. (laughs) There's no enforcement of the noise regulations. So when you hear those motorbikes that sound like a jackhammer or a machine gun, uh, they're, they're almost certainly in breach of yeah, noise regulations, yeah, yeah. but it's completely not enforced. Yeah. I was actually talking to a police officer about it once and at the end of the conversation he confessed he actually had one of those bikes. We're very interested to hear more about the plan to get one million Victorian homes off gas. Could you talk to us a bit about this initiative? Sure. So everybody listening to this is probably worried about the pace of global warming and how it's already bad, you know, England has broken through 40 degrees for the first time and the rivers in Europe have dried up and we're not at 1.5 degrees yet. Nearly half of the global warming we've experienced is due to gases other than CO2. And the most important one of those is methane, which is otherwise known as natural gas. And so we need to look at 
how gas is getting into the atmosphere. When we burn it, it turns into CO2, but fracking and other, other ways of obtaining gas are leading to huge amounts leaking into the atmosphere, unburned, and methane is more than 80 times more powerful than CO2. We need to do something about methane, we need to do it fast. And because of its potency, taking action on methane probably gives us a, a bigger impact on del delaying global warming than taking action on CO2. And Victoria's homes use two thirds of the household gas consumption in Australia. Wow. You know, when I was a kid, I remember my dad saying gas was clean, cheap, and there's lots of it in Bass Strait. And he was right, or at least from what we knew at the time. We now know it's not so clean and the big, the big reservoir in Bass Strait is running out. There are a couple more deposits in Bass Strait or gas fields, but they've got very high levels of CO2. So if we tap into those, all that CO2 has to go into the atmosphere as well. Sure. We're already importing a little bit of gas in wintertime through a pipeline to, from Northern Australia, but we'll be importing a lot more unless we reduce the amount we're using. Hence this policy we've announced to get a million homes off gas. And it's not very complicated. There's some uh, grants and some loans totaling about $6,000 per household for people to get rid of their gas heaters and gas hot water and buy modern electric heat pump type appliances. Heat pumps are which are air conditioners and, and heat pump hot water, are vastly more efficient than their gas equivalents. So they're not just cleaner because they use electricity and Victoria's electricity grid is now at least a third renewable and that's rapidly increasing, but they're actually mathematically a whole lot more efficient. You get about three times the amount of heating or cooling, or heating rather, from an air con for the energy you use if it's compared to burning that energy in a gas heater uh, due to some magic of physics. So uh, basically we need to replace every gas heater with a, an air conditioner over the next 10 years or so. Yeah. There's quite a big movement in my industry um, in, in architecture and construction to for architecture firms to stop um, specifying um, gas connections or any gas appliances in homes. And a, and a lot of people are getting on board and it is, it is tricky at times because, because various clients really do like cooking with gas. So I'm wondering two things probably. Is this something that's been on the radar of the Greens for, for a while? But also, you know, how do we, how do we convince people or how, how can we help people to see um, that the other options are are really are really good in terms of you know but I think cooking's a good one because people really do like to cook with gas particularly on barbecues mm. and cooking is where you see it yeah you see the blue flame with yeah. cooking but believe it or not cooking actually uses very little gas so almost all of the gas we're talking about is for heating I see yeah uh, a, a decent chunk also for hot water and, and if you think of all the household gas used in Australia, about 2% is used on cooking. But after you get rid of your gas heater and you get, get rid of your gas hot water, you're paying a substantial daily connection fee for the privilege of being hooked up to a supply to use a trivial amount of gas for cooking. And so you might as well go the whole way. And you can keep your gas barbecue in the backyard if you like, because frankly, the amount of gas 
used in barbecues in Australia is is not a major contributor to, to global warming. It's it's it should be the lowest of our priorities. So if people really want to cook with gas, sure, use the barbie. But the other thing I'm told, because I don't own one yet, is that once you've started with an induction cooktop, you won't look back. So that's the kind of household angle. But to go back to your question, how do we help people see the importance of this? Think about what's going on. Think about the fact that the Victorian government has approved gas drilling at the 12 Apostles. So instead of reducing our use of gas, we're looking for more in places that we should be leaving alone. Uh, I think that's a pretty compelling argument alone. Mm, mm. It, it seems like such a no-brainer getting off gas. We've got these alternative ways, you know, as you've described, around cooking and around heating our homes to, to not, have, not need gas connections anymore. Is there a key to noticing opportunities like this within the kind of built infrastructure that we have in the community so that we can, you know, kick these easy goals or, or is most of the low-hanging fruit gone? No, look, I think that the easiest home to disconnect from gas yeah. is the home that hasn't been built yet. Yeah. So you know, just because of its design, I'm finding it really hard to figure out what the hell to do with my hydronic heating. I, the, I've got this really open plan house. I'd really love to be able to shut off a room and just heat that room in the evenings and so on. So architecture and design is uh, is the low-hanging fruit, particularly for new homes. And it's appalling that we don't have higher energy efficiency standards mm. for mm. new homes. Mm-hmm. It's equally appalling that we don't have decent standards for homes that are advertised for sale or rent. You go buy a fridge, there's a sticker on it that has how many stars energy efficiency it is, but not if you go and rent a house. Yeah. And there should be a, a star rating for every house you rent or buy. Yeah. And, and so if you think about the energy bills that you're signing up for when you rent or buy a home, but how little information is available for the consumer mm. when, when you do that compared to when you buy a car. Or, or a fridge, you know, you know exactly the, the, the fuel you know, efficiency and yeah, you know all of, of that stuff. And you would never, you would never, you'd be unlikely to purchase a car without looking into that. Exactly. So, yeah. But what's the fuel efficiency, if you like, of your home? Mm. And and so consumers are in the dark. And if we did nothing else but mandate really accurate information for people buying or renting housing, yeah. that alone. I reckon would have a significant impact on on home energy efficiency. So uh, I, I think that's that's an easy spot to start. And then we could just increase you know, the average, you know, the, the average home energy efficiency, particularly for rental stock, is really low at the moment. But we could just gradually mandate for that to be increased over time. But uh, I think consumer pressure could well drive it faster than we would even need to mandate it. You know, we have a lot of building stock that is, um, you know, particularly in this area, there's, you know, a lot of the Victorian era homes which are just incredibly difficult to yeah. to heat. Do you think 
that kind of thinking would also require a, a government intervention or some some sort of rebate to kind of yes i think that extending you know rebate schemes to so we had a scheme everybody remembers the pink bat scheme under kevin rudd from uh, what 15 or so years ago now yeah yeah and that was really good policy yeah there were some problems with implementation but the biggest problem was that that it was the victim of a concerted media attack and so it became a controversy uh, and it was a successful messaging strategy by people who opposed it. The, uh, we need that sort of thing and we need it back and it's important. The energy efficiency gains in housing represent probably more than the equivalent of a single coal-fired power station in potential to, to reduce our emissions and we, we need to treat it with that level of importance. I think until recently people were more interested in a, a cheaper home and then mitigating cold and heat through heating and aircon. And now people want to invest more in their home, uh, in, in the insulation and pay less for heating and cooling. Is it all about money, do you think, or is there other factors at play? And how do we, how do we get a sense or how do you get a sense about when there's momentum in the community for change? Yeah. Well, you're right. It's now about more than money. You, you, can't, you can't look at the news now without seeing something relating to climate change. Yeah. And, you know, Brunswick is a fairly educated electorate uh, and, and people vote for altruistic reasons. You know, they, they don't vote green by coincidence. And so I think you could say that the fact that Brunswick went green is just one sign of many that there is change, there is an appetite for change in the community and it's it's driven by concern about climate change amongst other things more than just money. Yeah. Although isn't it so often the case that when you do something about climate change there's some other benefit? Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we talked about health earlier. Yeah. And so, you know, burning less gas or not burning gas in our homes could reduce asthma for example. So there are multiple benefits everywhere you look. But I feel that we're at a point now where there's, there's no sensible person debating the need for action on climate change. And I think that discerning consumers wanting lower energy bills will be the rule, not the exception. And the other thing is that you said before it was driven by people looking for cheaper accommodation. But in a way, if you just think about 10 years of energy bills and add that to the price of your the, the home you're purchasing or the rental, yeah. um, it, it, it turns out that paying a little bit extra for energy efficiency is, is cheaper in the medium term. Could you tell me a little bit about Doctors for the Environment Australia and for the Climate Health Alliance and how effective these organisations have been in connecting public health to climate change? Sure. I, I think they're indispensable yeah. and have been very valuable. And where I see the benefit as an MP is reading their submissions to parliamentary inquiries as sources of expert evidence and... There's, they do fantastic work putting together the evidence that, for example, fine particle pollution from diesels and wood heaters 
is responsible for strokes and heart attacks and how many strokes and heart attacks and what that costs the community. And only last night I was reading something by one of the DEA team, Doctors for the Environment team, uh, pointing out that the health costs in dollars from wood heaters is several thousand dollars a year to the community, more than the cost of buying and running the heater. Mm. The community is paying in in uh, health dollars. So uh, is that just in a local, would that be in a, in a more urban area? Or well, it, it's probably anywhere where there's a heater and there's enough people living around it to breathe the fumes. So even in a small country town. Sure. And you can, you sometimes see when you go into a small country town on a cold winter's morning, a, a rather attractive smoke haze over it. It kind of smells good. You're a visitor yeah, from the city. Yeah. You don't mind. Yeah. And But people breathing that year in, year out have significant health consequences. And so Launceston yeah. was one of those places and they yeah. had a buyback program mm. to reduce the number of wood heaters. And I, I think they roughly halved the number of wood heaters in Launceston. Yeah. And and got a roughly 40% reduction in in smoke pollution. Wasn't there a measurable impact on the amount of people reporting to hospital with, you know, with asthma or allergies? Yeah, there was some health gains, yeah. definitely. And I think the, and, and we haven't even mentioned where the firewood's coming, there's a considerable amount of, of logging and damage to forests just to fuel wood heaters. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned that just because I've just been reading the stuff from Doctors for the Environment about it. But, you know, they've also done great work on the coal-fired power stations and how Gippsland's coal-fired power stations are responsible for sulphur dioxide that spreads across Melbourne and even the north coast of Tasmania. So there's they're really important organisations and I uh, use their work all the time. What is the Doctors for the Environment Australia? So it's a, a group of doctors from all different specialties, yep. lots of GPs, uh, weirdly, it seems, lots of anaesthetists. Okay. And <laughs> they are concerned about both the impact of various industrial processes and so on on human health via air pollution, yep. but also their, their, I mean, their primary concern is climate change. Yeah. The other side of what they're looking at, though, is the impact of the health system on the environment and the huge mountains of single-use plastic disposables that accumulate in waste, even the impact of anaesthetic gases wow. on the wow. environment. Okay. So there's a particular anaesthetic that's about 24,000 times as potent as CO2 wow. as a global warming agent. So, yeah, they have a broad spread of interests and there's a lot of work for them to do. I do find it odd that it's taken so long for the health issues associated with coal-fired power stations becoming, you know, part of the conversation. Well, first up, I think that if we were living in the Latrobe Valley, yeah. we'd have heard some conversation about this More community now. sort of, but yeah, rather than in the media? or Yeah, more, more at a community level. Yes, sure. The I think that um, that what's happened is Victoria's kind of just lagged behind and it's got worse and worse. We now have amongst the world's most polluting power stations and the, the air quality standards for the emissions from 
coal-fired power stations in Europe, North America, even China, are 10 to 100 times tougher than the standards for Victoria's power stations. Now, that's largely because we have particularly dirty kind of coal here in Victoria in the form of brown coal, which is roughly 25% more polluting for CO2 than black coal. But it's even worse for things like mercury and sulfur dioxide. So if you look at the emission limits for Chinese power stations versus Australian coal-fired power stations, the the limits, particularly here in Victoria, are, are unusually high and and not very round numbers like 1,570 compared to 40. And it makes me think that our limits were designed to suit the power stations rather than to suit human health. And I I think we really need to put a lot more effort into cleaning up our power stations by putting uh, what's called scrubbing or cleaning technology into them. But I also think it's become so urgent to deal with climate change that probably the best solution is to close them. With the cost of renewables coming down so quickly, surely there's there's just going to be a lot of cheaper energy entering the market. It seems like those bigger power stations will ultimately just not be that profitable or? Yeah, well, so they total, the three, Victoria's three coal stations total about 4.8 gigawatts right. in output. There's more than six gigawatts of wind and solar projects approved on the government's planning website. Right, wow. wow. So they're going to go and Yalorn and Luoyang A in particular are breaking down all the time. They're shutting themselves off periodically. So we know we need new generation and nobody with a spare billion to invest is going to invest in a coal-fired power station. It's cheaper to invest now in solar and batteries than it is to invest in coal-fired power. So the, the change is happening whether we like it or not. And it's really the role of a government. If, if a government's serious about climate and ac- climate action, it, it needs to act fast and manage that transition, look after the workers, make sure the grid can handle the transition so we can ship solar-generated electricity from northwestern Victoria to Melbourne, look after storage so that we can power our homes in the evenings. But all the technology we need is there. All it requires is the political will. Do you see opportunities for manufacturing of, you know, various bits of renewable energy power stations yeah, in yeah, Victoria? Yeah. So the um, this is a really exciting part. For example, we, we know that we've already got a bit of an excess of, of solar electricity in the middle of the day, and that's only going to increase. So what do we do with that excess electricity? And so industries that can turn on at lunchtime or turn on in you know, in mid-morning and turn off in late afternoon uh, will will benefit from a lot of cheap power. Um, one of our, you know, Victoria's biggest electricity customer is the aluminium smelter at Portland. But it can only turn off right now for maybe 90 minutes before the aluminium solidifies. And so retrofitting that so it can turn off for longer periods and help manage demand on the grid will actually improve the management of our electricity system, but also benefit from all this cheap generation coming online. Do you think we can have a manufacturing industry that's manufacturing parts and 
you know, is there an opportunity for Australia to become a, a bigger player with high-tech manufacturing? Is there is there an opportunity through the renewable yes. industry for that to come back to Australia yes. a little bit? I see where you're coming from. So we've certainly got some of the ingredients that we need for that. And again, it, it comes down to political will as to whether we can put these bits together. For example, Australia is one of the, uh, has some of the biggest deposits of lithium in the world and, and other essential uh, rare minerals for, for battery development. We've also got leading battery researchers and we led solar panel research for decades uh, until not so long ago. So if we can somehow hook those things together, there's every reason for us to get back into manufacturing wind and solar and other renewable technology. You have spoken about building 100,000 homes as well as long-term provisional housing through the first housing model. Could you talk about those two things? Sure. So one of the problems that we've got is that governments around Australia, but particularly in Victoria, have retreated from seeing public ownership of housing as a, as a government responsibility. And we're now at a very low ebb in terms of the percentage of homes in Victoria that are government owned. Uh, from memory, it's around 3% or so. And was, it, was there a, a high? It, it was higher towards the end of last century. Right. Um, the importance, the, there are several reasons why government-owned housing is important. Obviously, for lower-income people, it's vital, but it's it's really essential for people who you might consider to be difficult tenants, people who the, the private sector are not going to be interested in looking after, like recently released prisoners or mentally ill people. But what's the best predictor of readmission to a psychiatric ward? Homelessness. What's the best predictor of reoffending and returning to prison? Homelessness. And it's in everybody's interest for the government to invest in housing it controls and it can say this person's going to live here because it's better for all of us if our most vulnerable people have housing. So Victoria's got a public housing waiting list of over 100,000. I think we might be up to 120,000 people. And the government has finally, a couple of budgets ago, announced a so-called big build of social housing, which is great. And I think that that the many community organisations and the Greens who've been pressuring the government on this can take a little bit of credit for that. Nevertheless, the pace of this big build leaves something to be desired and there's no suggestion yet that it's going to actually reduce the waiting list for public housing. So... They need to go a lot further. We need to push them to go, go a lot faster in building public housing. There's also some confusing terminology and the government's stopped using the term public housing and they're talking about social housing, which means that they, this housing will be outsourced and managed by, by NGOs, housing organisations, which for the most part works okay. But what about these, what you might call difficult difficult customers who it's in everybody's interests that we house. That's one of the weak points, I think, of, of uh, retreating from government responsibility to do this. 
So wh where do you put um, the difficult customers? Yeah, well, I think it, um, housing organisations are taking some of these people yeah. and, uh, and it is absolutely to their credit that they are doing it. But the, you know, the government needs to just step up and say, well, if you're homeless and you're coming out of prison, we're going we're gonna to provide you with a house. It's a hell of a lot cheaper to give someone a house than a prison cell. Prison is very expensive. Yeah. Looking at over $300 a night. Yeah. That's a pretty fancy hotel room. So where to next, Tim? We need a 75% reduction in emissions by 2030. How will we do it? So I think that we need to show Victoria's politicians that we care. And right now, every politician in Victoria, this one included, is looking towards the 26th of November state election. And call me biased, but I think the best way to show the Victorian political scene that you care about climate action is to vote Green. It's pretty simple. The, the point is that if your vote is recorded as a, as a climate action vote, uh, then it will be noticed and it will be noticed across the political spectrum. And uh, Monique Ryan and Zoe Daniel in, in the east, inner eastern suburbs identified their campaigns with climate action so people listening to this might also identify um, climate, other climate action candidates and by all means vote for them. But I think vote for a climate candidate uh, of, of whatever shade of green or greenish uh, you prefer, and that's going to send the loudest message to to Victorian governments, uh, present and future. And what sort of infrastructure, what sort of big changes in the way we're doing things at an infrastructure level do you think we'll need by 2030? Like what, what are the big ticket things that you want to see happen soon? Yeah, so my vision for 2030 yeah. is that there'll be a farewell party for our last coal-fired power station. Sure. And the workers from those stations will, will get leave from their new jobs uh, or come out of retirement to come to the party and that they'll be having topped up salaries to keep them in the style to which they've become accustomed. That's, that's one thing for 2030. We'll have half the number of homes on gas that we currently have and we won't be wasting time with uh, greenwashing about the methane gas in our, running through our pipes. We won't be trickling a tiny amount of hydrogen in, in to make it acceptable. We'll just be living better electrically. And so a lot of, a lot of all electric homes and people will come to that party on e-bikes, uh, <laughs> in electric buses. Um, there'll be, the car park will be full of Nissan Leafs around the corner. And so electrifying transport will be a big part of it as well. The other thing we'll be doing is trapping more carbon because we will have stopped native forest logging. And I would prefer that we stop native forest logging a lot sooner because one of the best mechanisms for carbon drawdown from the atmosphere is a tree. Where are we on the, on the journey to um, the 75%? Where are we sitting at the moment? Well, I, I feel kind of optimistic. I think that we're about a third of our electricity in Victoria came from renewables yeah. and South Australia is getting close to two-thirds. Yeah. So, and the ACT, 100%. So 
there, there's real momentum there. Um, in terms of our overall emissions target reduction, we've still got a way to go. So Victoria's state targets of around 50% uh, are still too low. Yeah. Um, you know, we need to increase that target to 75%. But we're only halfway to we're at the sort of 25% or so yeah, sure. point now. Sure. Um, but, I, you know, even without government action, we're going to do better than that target. Yeah. But uh, it's better to aim high and miss than to aim low and get there. Yeah. I think we'll leave it there, Tim. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Make Good. This podcast was brought to you by Dreamer. We are an architecture and design studio in Brunswick, Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to learn more about Dreamer and the work that we do, please visit our website at www.dreamerlab.com.au or get in touch at studio at dreamerlab.com.au. If you'd like to stay in touch with Tim Reed and see what he's up to, check out his Instagram at Tim Reed Greens. The intro and outro music was made by me, Ben Shields. I make music under the name Dull Reality. If you have any feedback at all about the podcast, please email me at makegood at dreamerlab.com.au. 